January 17th, 1994. It was 4.30 in the morning. I was in the shower. And the Northridge earthquake hit in Southern California. Now, most people don't know this, that the Northridge earthquake was the most dramatic, what they call a thrust, uh, earthquake thrust, because it happened on, on a place that they didn't know a fault line was there. And it created such a seismic activity that everything rolled out. Now, I was 50, 60 miles away. I was in the shower in a second-story building, and I had my eyes closed, so I wouldn't get soap in my eyes. And the next thing you know, I am body-slammed against the wall. And I'm like, what is going on? And then I realize I am in the middle of an earthquake, so I jump out, and I got three little girls, and I got my wife, and I'm like, do, do I rinse or do I run? Do I rinse or do I run? Well, I ran. That's what I ended up doing. Shampoo in my hair, 4.30 in the morning. Now, every time I, because I grew up in Southern California, I, I understand earthquakes. And today we're going to talk about Jesus being the rock. And every time I think about this song, um, the solid rock, I don't know if you guys remember it, goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Shifting sands, sinking sands. All other ground is sinking sand. Anything else I put my faith in is going to fail me. And being in an earthquake, you want solid ground. Let me tell you. That's the most scariest thing. You know, I was in the shampoo business. I had, we had a blow molding machine that weighs eight tons. It was lifted 12 feet off the ground during this earthquake and then turned over. That's how powerful... And I don't know what is happening in your life right now that might be a seismic earthquake. Maybe a relationally, maybe financially. I don't know. But when it comes to Jesus, he is the only one that you can put your trust and faith in. Now, remember, we are going through the, the entire Bible very quickly through the story. It's like the Reader's Digest. And so we're, we're now in the life of Jesus. But the nation of Israel was expecting a deliverer, a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ, the solid rock. And their prophets gave specific prophecies, hundreds of them, about what the Messiah was going to do and what he was going to look like. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, born from the tribe of Judah, heal the sick, give sight to the blind. He'd be a great messenger of God. He would set the captives free. He would establish a never-ending kingdom. And he would be God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, called Wonderful Counselor. They were looking for a Savior, but remember last week they were looking for their kind of Savior. What kind of Savior do we need? A Savior normally saves you from your enemies or problems, but we discovered last week that we need a different kind of Savior. We need a Savior that saves us from who? Us. That's who we need to be rescued from, from ourselves. One who saves me from me, my sinful nature. So we need new DNA. We need to be born again. We need to be born from the last Adam, Jesus, born from above, a spiritual birth. Because he has the power to forgive, 
the power to atone, make us right, make us clean, make us a new creation, a new person. And he not only rescues us, but he restores us. Now, in the book of the Gospel of John, I love the chapters 3 and 4 because it contrasts Nicodemus, who was high and lofty in society, and then the woman at the well, who'd just been sleeping around so much that she was an outcast from society. And when you look at those two stories, he basically says, I'm the savior of Nicodemus, and I'm the savior of the woman at the well, the elite and the low life, religious and the rebellious, those that are male and female, those that are Gentile or Jew. Let's put it in our terms. Does Jesus save Republicans? Yes. Does he save Democrats? Yes. Does he save everything in between? Yes. He's the savior of all. Whether you're a communist or a capitalist, whether you're intellectual or whether you're not intellectual, Jesus is the savior of all mankind and he saves us from ourselves and he saves us to be new creation. So this week we ask this question, who is this Jesus? And if you could throw the, the first slide on, who, who is this Jesus? More than a great teacher? His teachings were revolutionary. Nobody taught like Jesus taught. Do you remember when the Pharisees said, guards, go get Jesus, throw him in jail? And the guards went to arrest Jesus, and they couldn't even arrest him. And they came back without Jesus. And the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin says, why didn't you bring Jesus? Do you remember the response? The guards said, we've never heard anybody teach like he does. And we're not going to arrest him. He told us to love our enemies, to do not worry that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He told us and taught us to forgive and to love one another as He has loved us. He told us that God wants to restore our relationship, to invite us back into the kingdom. You know, Jesus went around and 60 times in the gospel it says, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Let me put it in modern term. The kingdom has come. It's here right now. You can come into this spiritual kingdom today. Not, oh, Jesus is my ticket to heaven, and I'm just going to endure life here, and once I die, then I get to be with Jesus. No, Jesus says you can be in his presence right now. Who is this Jesus more than a man with authority over nature? He's a miracle worker, but his miracles backed up what he was teaching. He calmed the sea in a storm cast out demons, gave sight to the blind. He forgave people their sin. He made the lame walk. He fed the 5,000 with just a few fish and loaves. Who is this Jesus? More than a man with a message, he brought us the kingdom. Now, I hope you have your Bibles with you. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to try to answer this question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Before we get there, let me tell you what the very first fill in the blank is, though, before we read the text. And we're going to read it in three little bites. But here is the first fill in the blank. It's a story within a story. It's a narrative within a narrative, but there's really only one theme. And that's about faith in Jesus. So if you're in Luke chapter 8, we're going to pick it up at verse 40. Now Jesus is coming back into town 
And when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man from, uh, named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and the text says that she's dying. She's dying. Now, I don't know if you've been catching up on what's going on in our nation with this flu bug. I mean, people are literally dying within hours after getting this thing. I mean, this is a serious thing. This is his only daughter. She's only 12 years old. She hasn't even, in in Jewish culture, uh, lived long enough to even have her bar mitzvah. But it's not bar mitzvah. It's a bat mitzvah. And so... Here's this ruler of the synagogue, who means he's an uppity-up kind of guy. He's a leader in the, the community. It says this, he falls at Jesus' feet, and he implores, he begs. He is probably weeping, he is crying, and asks Jesus to come to his house, because she's dying. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for the same years as this girl was alive, for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on doctors, physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus, verse 44, and touched the fringe of his garment. Now, in another parallel passage, in the passage of Mark Mark tells us she's thinking to herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And she did it, and immediately it says her discharge of blood ceased. I want to get gross, but could you imagine having a period for 12 years? That's what was happening. There's something going on in her female region, and she is bleeding out slowly. She spent everything. Now, we have to understand some other things about that. I'll get that. uh, Let me finish this little bit. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you, and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, hey, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has come out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, remember she came up behind him. She came trembling and falling down now before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Verse 48 says, Jesus said to her, daughter, which is a very tender word, you don't say daughter to a complete strange, stranger or a woman. Uh, that just, but it's this tender, fatherly approach. And you know that Jesus is, is younger than her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in peace. So what's the fill in the blank here? It is the stealing of a healing. It's not difficult to understand why she approached Jesus from behind, unseen, while Jairus faced our Lord, falling at his feet. Jairus beseeched the Lord, please heal my daughter. Jesus says, okay, let's go, boom. 
Here's why. First of all, she had a medical problem, right? And because it was blood, that meant that she was unclean. Ceremonially unclean. Which means that she couldn't ever go to synagogue, which basically means she has been excluded from her community for 12 years. Could you imagine that? Being excluded from your community for 12 years because you are ceremonially unclean? No synagogue, no hugs, limited isolation, frustration, losing all of her money, suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. You know when you get sick and you're desperate and you have cancer, you do some crazy things, don't you? I had a neighbor who was uh, dying of cancer. He heard about a treatment in Mexico. He was selling his house, going to leave his wife penniless with nothing so that he might get healed in Mexico. It turned out that it was a scam. But when you're desperate, you'll do anything. Are you with me on that? When you're facing death, you get desperate. So she, she had a problem of getting through the crowd, which is pressing in on, on, on Jesus anyways, right? And the woman had to work her way through the crowd to get a hold of it. Jesus and Jairus are walking, and she's trying to go through. Now she's weak. I don't know if you've... Tammy had got to spend three days in a hospital once because her hemoglobin count went down to about seven. Doctor said, well, good thing you didn't get in an accident. You would have bled out. Here this woman has been bleeding out for 12 years, and Tammy was so weak, she was in the hospital for three days. I don't know how many pints of blood that we ended up giving her, but a lot and so here she is giving it her all to touch the fringe of Jesus. It wasn't like, oh, hey, this is going to be a cool idea. Let me go see if this works. She had faith and knew if I could touch this miracle worker, I'll be healed. And then she had to do it in such a way that it wouldn't draw attention to herself. I don't know if you've ever been Black Friday shopping. You don't have to make any confessions or admit it, but having three daughters, we went black shopping all the time. You get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, at least back then you went at 3 o'clock in the morning for a $5 waffle maker, but you had to fight the crowds. Jesus could draw a crowd bigger than Black Friday shopping. And she had to fight that crowd, not for a waffle iron maker or whatever, but to touch Jesus. Notice some things out of the text. Jesus valued her. Before she was behind Jesus out of his sight, now she's at the feet of Jesus. Maybe she felt that she wasn't worthy to approach him directly. Maybe she felt ceremonially dirty and unclean. And remember, when bad things happen to good people, a lot of bad theology is out there and people think, well, God's out to get me because I've done something wrong. That's why my car broke down. That's why things happen to me because God somehow is angry at me and he's getting back at me. Jesus doesn't say any of that. He turns around and values her. He calls her daughter. I don't know if you've ever felt unworthy. I have. And I have to remember who I'm talking to. He's the one that makes everyone clean. He's the one that takes away shame. He's the one that takes away guilt. He's the one that calls me son and daughter. And Jesus 
said, let's, let's let the whole world know. I know you did this in secret, but let's let the whole world know that I did it, but it was because you trusted me. You had faith. He doesn't want this to be overlooked. What would have happened? Let's just speculate here for a second. Let's just pontificate. Let's just chew on this for a second. Let's say that she would have touched Jesus, got healed, and ran away. Do you think that every day she worries that the healing will be taken away from her? Because she stole it, right? Jesus wanted to make sure that this grace was free, and she knew it. She was going to be healed forevermore, not today, but always, because she didn't steal it. Grace If you want to write this down, grace has no guilt. When you are forgiven, you are forgiven. There's no condemnation. That's what Romans tells us. When we're in Jesus, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And we all said either amen or woohoo. You choose. Woohoo! We don't have to be afraid because he has cleansed us. I don't know why, but when she reached out to Jesus, she was totally anonymous, and then Jesus calls her. Guess what happened because of that? Now everybody knows she's healed. Guess what happens to her community? She's accepted again. Do you think the very first Sabbath that came along, she was back in synagogue? You better believe it. Do you think she anxiously ran up to the temple in Jerusalem because she hasn't been able to do that for 12 years? Yeah, it was like this door opened because it became a public event. You cannot be a secret Christian. God wants your faith to be evident to all. Do you remember uh, years ago, 2008, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the first draft of, of the, I think, the, the, oh, at the Democratic Convention, they changed freedom of religion to freedom of worship. Do you remember that? Maybe I'm the only one that took attention to that. There's a difference between, it's subtle. Freedom of religion means you get to go out and be public about who you love, that you love Jesus. And you can, as a baker, say no to baking certain kind of cakes. As a pastor, I can say no. I don't have to marry these two people. I have a choice because freedom of religion, freedom of worship is a little different. You have the right to do whatever you want in your building, but leave it there. Don't take it to the public square. And have you seen that over the last 10 years, what's happening to our conscience to say, no, I don't believe in that. Jesus says this is wrong, and I want to say it's wrong. And if you say it's wrong, you're devilified. Now, this doesn't mean we do it with hate. We do it with love. We hope that everybody comes to know Jesus. Am I right? And so we are to be the most loving, gentle, respectful people on the planet. But that doesn't say that we morally do whatever the culture says. Jesus said it. I believe it. I'm going to live by it. That's freedom of religion, not freedom of worship. Now, let's go on to the next part of the text. Verse 49 
says this, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And, well, let's just stop right there. Well, let's read a little further. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said to her, he said to them, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. Verse 53, what does it say? It says they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, which is just interesting, because some cults teach that our souls sleep. And no, our, to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. That's why well, I'm, I can't, I'm not saying I can't wait to die, but I have no fear of death, because I know to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of Jesus. And that's remarkable. So that's why he does, the text doesn't say he woke her, her spirit up or her soul up. It says he what? Her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Here's, here's the next fill in the blank, a deadly delay that brought glory. What seemed not good was actually used to strengthen the faith of Jairus and his wife. Do you realize that God's timing is always perfect? We booger it up. We can admit that when we get ahead of Jesus. We get ahead of God. God's ways are always the best. And I love that it's one thing for a doctor to make somebody better, but it's another thing to raise somebody completely from the dead. I mean, this is huge. But sometimes there are delays delays in God answering our prayers. Four things. It's not on your outline, but you might want to write them down. Number one is this. It draws us close to Him. It draws us close to Him. Number two, it deepens our faith. We keep trusting. Number three, it, re- it renews our focus, not on the problem, but on the one who solves our problems. And number four, it always brings Jesus glory. It brings God glory. So sometimes there are delays in God answering our prayers and the way he answers them because we draw close. I've shared this before, but when Tammy and I were in Northern California and we are involved in more of the drug culture, more so than here. I mean, it was known as the Bermuda Triangle of, of drugs. You cooked meth in the forest, you grew pot in the forest, and then you brought in cocaine. It was known as this triangle of drugs and, and dealing with people. And I kid you not, nine out of ten people that came out of meth addiction are still addicted and one might just have a miraculous healing where they don't have any desire to, to use meth at all or any other drug of choice. They're just completely free of that addiction. And I had one gentleman that said, why won't God take this addiction away from me? And I said, you know why? Because if he did take the desire, you'd leave him and go on to your next thing. But because you are weak, 
you are made strong because you cling to Jesus. Walter, one of my good friends in Northern California, he's been sober 29 years. Every day he doesn't think about drinking, but almost every day. But it is his relationship with Jesus that keeps him grounded. And we might say, God, that doesn't seem fair. God does what's in the best interest of you to keep you close to him. That's why we don't go home and find million-dollar checks in our mailbox. If we found million-dollar checks in our mailbox, what will we do besides have a big party? Suddenly, money is able to solve a lot of our problems. That is true. Money can solve a lot of your problems, but not the deep ones, but it can solve. So God does not bless us like that because he knows that if I eat hand-to-mouth, I'm going to be on my knees every day. Somebody give me a nod and say, I'm with you on that. Okay, very good. Thank you. Let's look at verse 48 and 50 again for just a moment. He said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And then 50, on hearing this about not troubling him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. Both of those verses talk about faith. Faith. Here's the next fill in the blank. Faith in Jesus brings hope when all human hope is gone. September of 2000, we got a phone call from Tammy's sister that said, I have leukemia and I'm dying. This is before stem cell treatment. We rushed down to Southern California and found her in a county hospital in their oncology unit. They had carpet. You know how clean that is? They were going to do this new experimental thing called stem cells. Nobody had ever done it. They, got, they moved her over to a major, major hospital in L.A., and they started harvesting her stem cells and then nuked her and then put them back in, and it was all experimental. She's one of those first experimental people in September of 2000. We still remember that moment in time. We still remember the trip down to Southern California. We still remember walking into that hospital bed, into that room. We still remember the agonizing year that went forth. Do you know if she had been healed in a week, we'd have been forgotten about? If she had been healed in a week, we, we, we would have just, uh, oh, you know, that's a fluke and, and moved on. But because it took time, her faith grew. Her husband, who rejected Jesus, said he was an atheist, came to Jesus. That's huge. His eternal salvation came. Yeah, she had to put up with this experiment. She had to do a lot. But God's purposes are bigger. And here it is. Faith in Jesus brings hope when all human hope is gone. She had seen all the doctors. She had spent all her money, 12 years. But the woman had faith in Jesus because faith brings hope. You can't live in this world today without hope. Am I right? You need hope. What 
grows your hope. It's faith. It's faith in Jesus. If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Faith spurred her on to hope. Jairus' servant, well, there's hope as long as she was alive, but as soon as she was dead, don't bother Jesus any longer. But Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. Faith in Jesus brings hope when all other human hope is gone. Some of you here are hopeless today. Some of you here have friends, neighbors, and family that are hopeless today. Oh, there was hope as long as the economy was good. There was hope as long as the sickness didn't spread. Oh, there was hope as long as the marriage held together. Oh, there was hope as long as we got the right president in. Oh, there was hope as long as North Korea doesn't go nuclear. Oh, there's hope when there's, when there's uh, no drought and the rain's coming. Oh, there was hope when the cancer was contained and isolated and hadn't put out its ugly tentacles. There was hope because the car's still in good shape. There's hope because our kids are hanging out with the right kinds of kids. There was hope as long as everything is rolling okay. There's hope as long as we can make the minimum payment. There's hope as long as you just fill in the blank. But when we trust our own strength, our own ideas, our own resources, and our own abilities, they eventually will fail us. Sometimes the things in this world need to be stripped away until the only option we have is to trust Jesus, to trust in the new creation that He's making us. And then our hope grows. You know, in Hebrews it says this, and I know many of you are familiar with this passage, but it's good to hear it again. It says, without faith, it is impossible, impossible, impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Who is this Jesus? Jesus said these seven statements in John, and then we'll close. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the gate that you go through. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. This is where Jesus asked me to do something very, very hard. Because coming to Christ isn't like easy peasy. Jesus said, count the cost because I'm going to ask for everything you've got. I'm going to ask for everything you've got. You've got to die to self, get off the throne of your heart, and put me there and let me start living in you. Yes, start reigning in you. Difference reigning in you because Jesus had tough teaching hard teachings some hard to understand some to hollow, uh, hard to follow through on let me close with this 
Jesus is making these tough statements that you have to die to self, that you have to carry your cross everywhere you go and willing to sacrifice, whether you're in the Walmart aisle or whether you're on the internet or whether you're in a marriage that's not so good or whether this, Jesus says, be willing to die to self and let me live through you, empower you, strengthen you and make you the new creation you're supposed to become. And the crowds were leaving Jesus and he turned to the 12 and he said, do you guys want to leave too? You know what Peter said? Good old Peter. This is one of those times where he just shines through. He says, where else will we go? You are the Holy One of God. Only you have words of life. Words of life. 